I'll tell you what, brethren, uh, as an expression of my appreciation which has taken place in the last two periods, uh, simply to indicate our uh, uh, appreciation and love for the work that is involved, these two brothers that have, uh, in these preceding classes, obviously, have put a great deal of work into these classes, and it really is marvelous to uh, be able to come to Bible school and to uh, apply ourselves <coughs> with a sincere desire to become much better acquainted with uh, the Scriptures and to appreciate in a much deeper sense the uh, plan and purpose that deity has with the earth and uh, our hopeful participation in that plan. Uh, yesterday we ended our class with uh, putting on the board over here to our left uh, the camp, the tents of the Levites, the tents of the uh, Levitical priests as they were placed in the camp. Then we had the tents of Aaron and Moses and his sons. And uh, then we showed the, uh, the court of fine linen, which was a curtained off area. And then within that, we showed the tabernacle and we even broke that down into the two sections, which was the holy place and the most holy. And uh, one or two of the uh, uh, brethren in the class said that maybe they misunderstood what we said in relation to the tents of the Levites, which we said numbered r uh, roughly 22,000. Uh, uh, those tents, let's draw here on the board for a moment. Let's, uh, for the sake of uh, appreciating what we were saying in terms of how the camp was uh, arranged, I'm going to put this on the board like this. This, uh, we say, is the, the, uh, the encampment of Israel. And we were talking in terms of the, uh, the tents of the Levites, who have already obviously in the principles being dealt with in the previous two classes, were dealing in terms of rank. We find that when we come to uh, an examination of the scripture record as to when they were positioned in the camp, that it's on uh, what we, I guess, call a, a square horseshoe, uh, and indeed, like this, this would be the tents of the Levites, numbering around 23,000. And you will remember that we uh, uh, made special reference to the fact that there were these broad open areas between the encampment, the tents of the encampment, before you would ever get this close to the tents of the Levites. But you'll notice we did not close this in. Now, the reason that a couple of brethren came to me afterwards, and we appreciated the fact that they did, because sometimes we think that we have made ourselves clear, but maybe we haven't. But in the arrangement of the camp, and as we find it uh, detailedly described in the scriptures, the tent of the Levites only came around on three sides, and then when you're on the east side, you find the tent, course, of Moses and Aaron and his sons. So we do not need to leave the idea that the tents of the Levites completely encircle that, and then these tents were outside that one. This is the way that it's arranged there. <coughs> so again, you got it from the outside. Huh? You got it from the outside. Well, right now, I mean, I, uh, I don't want to read my thoughts, but I, what we're saying is that if it is a visual, let me get one of mine. If it is a visual, 
will come from the outside world. I think that would be a good description. Outside world, someone who have heard about the encampment of Israel, and they come to look at this encampment. Had they proceeded in this way, as say someone living in the camp had proceeded coming to the focal point of the camp, this is the way that they would have seen it. They would have first seen the, the uh, tents here of the encampment. Then they would have proceeded across the open space and seen the tents of the Levites. And then had they come around in that broad open area, they would have seen the tents of Moses and Aaron and his sons. And then they would have seen, then they would have seen that enclosed or curtained area. And then inside that, of course, would have been the tabernacle. Now, in reference to what Sister Angel said that, maybe we did show it on the side of everything we were trying to do, and you were looking at that direction, we figured we would uh, try to make it clear. Is it clear to you what we tried to say behind? Okay. We appreciate the fact that I was able that sometimes uh, we don't make ourselves as clear as we would like to. Now, the key to the, uh, the appreciation and understanding of this subject of the tabernacle, you have to take a look at the materials. And interestingly enough, God, uh, in his wisdom and in his foreknowledge, knowing that his students, that his people, would investigate his work very closely, he gives us uh, the enumeration of the materials that go into all of this wonderful tabernacle area here. So turn with me to the 25th chapter of Exodus. And again, this is a God-provided key. We have to see the materials, and we have to understand their symbolical, spiritual uh, meanings before we can appreciate what's involved in the teachings of this subject here. All right, in Exodus 25, uh, 1 through uh, 9, and for those of you who uh, are taking notes, uh, I would like to see you put that down, this uh, 25th chapter here. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet, and fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and badger skins, and shittim wood, and some uh, refer or think that is acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for sweet incense, honest stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Now, I want to give you another reference there, uh, for this materials was given. I've given you Exodus 25, 1 through 9. I ask also that you put down Exodus 35, 4 through 9. We have in the recording of this, this history of this tabernacle uh, these two different places where these materials are enumerated here. Now, let's take them as they're given to us here. 
and this is our God-provided key. The first item that's mentioned in the list of the materials, and I think it's significant, uh, I think uh, it really struck me as a, a very uh, excellent thought here, uh, you'll notice in the reading that God had said to Moses that he wanted Israel to respond with a willing and joyful spirit in giving of uh, these materials. And uh, I'm not sure whether we made mention of this in, uh, in a class last year, but uh, it's rather interesting when you think of Israel uh, having been down in Egypt for roughly this 230 years, and they were literally a slave nation without very many privileges, where is it that they got all of the wealth that they came out with and that's uh, in this tabernacle? If they were slaves, which they were, how is it and where did the wealth come from? Because there was a tremendous amount of wealth living to this tabernacle. In fact, uh, some of our amended brethren who have done a very excellent study on this, and I know this a brother Ralph has that, and I also have it in my possession, uh, they mentioned that uh, there was, uh, there was uh, one and a half tons of gold, really significant, doesn't mean anything about it, one and a half tons of gold, and in excess of five tons of silver. I was trying to think right off hand, how many is it? Is it 2,000 pounds to a ton? Yeah. I didn't think of that. These things, they are a matter of interest, and it's not just out of curiosity. But it helps us to appreciate the amount of wealth out there in that wilderness. And this thought occurred to me. Where did all of this wealth come from when they were slaves? So back to our question. Does anyone want to talk? I'm sure that some of you know. Where did the wealth come from? The answer is found in Exodus 11, verses 2 and 3. All right, brother Jim, read it. And read it loud enough so all of us can benefit from it. It's very interesting. Here is where the wealth came from. Exodus 11, 2 and 3. Speak now in the ears of the people, let every man borrow of his neighbor, and every woman of her neighbor, jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of Egypt. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So there is the answer to the question. The answer is now. They spoiled the Egyptians, and yet you notice the language here, they said boy. To boy some means you bought, but you will return it. Israel was not going to return as well. So after all of these slave years, they were repaid, as it were, for not being paid the wages that they should have. And so they come out with this tremendous amount of wealth. And it's interesting in looking at this, and we felt that it was a good point to be made in the class, uh, just looking at the gold and silver, the amount of wealth involved there. So when you're talking about uh, five tons of silver, in excess of five tons of silver and one and a half tons of gold, you've got a tremendous amount of wealth involved there. All right, Brother Harold? Uh, that word, uh, bar, is not the right translation. You should ask, ask the Demand. Demand. That's a good point. I just said, here, Herod said one uh, reference he had was asked of, and this sister over here said that one says, demand of. But uh, it's interesting that in our reading of it, 
it does say boil, but yet the scripture says they spoil them. And when you spoil somebody, you're not going to ask them and say, could I borrow something from you with the idea we will return? Now let's pass on. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting again that John says that he wanted them to give it willingly. And uh, just briefly, let's turn to the 31st chapter of Exodus. And there's several verses there that we uh, want to pick up. Uh, Exodus 31, and uh, here is God's instructions to the workmen. Now, again, we'll be thinking of what's involved here, and all of the furnishings and the instruments and the setting up and the erecting of that tabernacle and its positioning. Somebody had to be given divine knowledge. Somebody had to give them the knowledge to how to go about this. So, again... Uh, the scriptures and God and his wisdom is recorded for us. How it is to answer these questions, it comes to the sincere student. How would they know to go about this? Because had it been left to the discretion of uh, Moses and Aaron and even to the priest, no telling how many ideas they would have come up with as to how God making a tabernacle and even what would have been used there as a matter of furniture. But it was not. It was divinely given. And so in Exodus 31, let's look at the first six verses. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bethaniel, the son of Uriah, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold, and in silver, and in brass, and in the cutting of stones, to set them, and in the carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. And I behold, and I have given him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamuth, of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom, that they may make all that I have commanded thee. Now, let's take a look at Exodus 35, which is a, uh, a very excellent reference. And again, we've been thinking in terms of the camp, uh, thinking in terms of, uh, of the response that the people have given. Everyone is involved. There is a joyful, willing participation in this. Everyone is involved. And in Exodus 35, 25 through uh, 29, notice the women are involved in this. And all the women that were wise-hearted did spin with their hands and brought that which they had spun, both of blue and of purple and of scarlet and of fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hair. And the rulers brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate. Now, let's take a look at, uh, at Exodus 36, 5 through 7. And this is an answer to whether when God says, let them bring it willfully, uh, willfully here, with the idea of giving it in a generous manner. Actually, they gave it the wealth that they had. They gave it in superabundance. And in Exodus 36, 5 and 7, uh, this is established here. Uh, and they speak unto Moses, saying, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord had commanded to make. And then Moses 
after you heard that they had given more than was sufficient or enough, Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offerings of the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing, for the stuff that they for the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it, and too much. And that, that's interesting. In other words, again, if you think that these are uh, just, uh, well, in other words, the fact that God is recording it, it helps us to appreciate what is involved here. And it gives us a picture of life in the camp and the responses with other people. Uh, let's take a look now at the, uh, at the materials themselves. And let's go back to Exodus 25. And again, brethren, with, uh, without belaboring the point, this is the God-provided key to our understanding of this tabernacle. And interestingly enough, these same principles involved here in Exodus will apply to the previous two classes that we have here at the school. It's really remarkable, and we would expect the truth would harmonize in this way. So in this Exodus 25, where we have an accounting of the uh, materials of the book, the first thing that mentioned is what? We've got gold. So we'll come over here and we'll put on the board here uh, the gold. <coughs> now, in our uh, studies as uh, students of the Scripture, uh, basically, what do we associate with gold? Alright, we've got prior faith. Uh, I'm going to put that over here and have a reason for it. Alright, anything else? Everlasting. 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 It's a good point, but anyone else? Who said tried? Wouldn't that come with tried faith? Alright. Anything else? Just to get us to thinking. Most valuable, most valuable of all the materials that were enumerated, isn't the gold the most valuable? Alright, so with this with this thought in mind, if it's the most valuable, then there must be some special significance attached to it. And tried faith is good and the scriptures sustain this. But I'm going to put what is, is very important here. It is, in other words, and some of you might want to take notes here, it's God-likeness. It's a symbol of God-likeness, or like God. Now, I'm going to have to raise this for just a minute and put it back up there. And in this God-likeness, innocently enough, and we hope that in some small measure we can try to tie these classes in, this God-likeness involves not only the moral aspect of this thing, but also the physical. So in here in parentheses, and if you are taking notes, let's put moral-likeness, as it were, and uh, physical. Now, let's put our card tape over here now. Now, brethren, to emphasize the, uh, the beauty of these materials, we will have occasion to refer to the gold and what it means as we proceed into the tabernacle. All right, what's the next thing mentioned in there? What words go? What is said in the scripture? The silver. All right. The silver. 
would you say that the silver might be next in value to go? It seems to be suggested here, but what about your precious stones? It's just a thought. All right, but we've got the silver. What in your mind does the silver stand for in Scripture? What do we relate it with? Redemption. Huh? Redemption. All right, redemption. Anyone else? Obedience. Right. Just what we got. All right, it's interesting. It is a fact, brethren, and this isn't just speculating. We're not reaching out and grabbing something here. These principles are sustained in Scripture. But silver stands for redemption. And, as one brother said there, you don't have re redemption without obedience. So in parentheses, those of you who are taking those for obedience, Okay, what's the next one mentioned there? The brass. Now, brethren, you know, maybe a small one, I've got it in my notes this way, but underneath the little parentheses, I would ask you to put bronze because this comes much closer to the metal. It is the metal that was used here. So put, instead of brass, let's put the bronze there underneath so you know. Because the brass that we know is not the bronze that was used there. And I think we ought to keep that in mind. So let's put the bronze there. And in our studies of the scriptures, basically, what, we do, what is our understanding that the time? All right. Brass stands for sin's flesh. All right. What's the next thing that's mentioned? Uh, huh? All right. Let's get the blue then. Generally speaking now, and I'm asking for a response to what are we associating the blue with in Scripture? Huh? Heavenliness? Anything else? Huh? Healing? Anything else? Anyone? I, I know, see, I see some of the blue in the class. But by the way, you brethren might be able to know, we are not even referring to notes of last year. We have completely gone through this thing again to get it in our own mind. These are completely notes, and we did it because we appreciated our need of getting this fresh in our mind. So in the blue there, let's put first heaviness. Okay. Huh? Okay. All right, And brethren, I ask that you put in parentheses because I was a, a pertinent point here. Uh, in heaven, and it's put God's work. It's God's work. And there's one other word that we want to put up here, and I know some of them were in our class last year, but what word is it? Some of them were in class last year. Huh? Do violence to this prison here. 
In fact, uh, uh, Brother Ralph in his class gave us two or three excellent examples where this healing is mentioned. All right, now, what comes next? We've got the blue. Purple. And I heard someone say, well, I think so we're going to... Anything else? When you think of royalty, see, he's talking about rights, and we're not royalty, what else? Yeah. Kingship. All right, kingship. I guess I'm going to have to put our panels on the floor, and we're going to have to have room What comes next? Scarlet. What this started, scripture is speaking, and again I'm hoping that our young people in, in the scriptures, when we uh, associate it with different verses in the scriptures, wherever we might find them, whether the Old Testament or the New, what is the general impression we get when red is used? It's red. Sin's flesh, well, we've got sin's flesh up here for bread. Let's put number one, sins. And what's my reading? Well, Though your sins, though your sins be as scarlet, then you may write. But it not only stands for sins, but it also stands for sin. For sin. And I'm going to put in parentheses, and again, some of it, if you and me were in the class last year, we've got sins and sins for scarlet. What is this sin singular? It's constitutional sin. It's Adamic sin. So let's put here Adamic sin or constitutional sin. That's what the right stands for. No, it's sin. Anna, as a good sister, if you stay with us, I think we'll see why we're breaking it down here. All right, now, uh, what else comes in there? No, I'm not ever started. We finished that. We got our way of using the city by the way. You know, I keep talking about this thing here. So we moved it back out of the way. We'll go further. Now, this is one point that we're more familiar with, but usually in the scriptures, what do we always associate with linen? Righteousness, and usually you find fine twine linen and white linen. Well, you said purity there, but it's usually white linen, fine twine linen, but it really stands for righteousness. And again, I, one of our preceding classes made mention of this fact. Righteousness. Now, this, this completes the tabernacle proper, or the mishkan, or the sanctuary. But we've got other things mentioned. Let's mention next. Is this Jude? Yeah. Yeah. Now, let's put the boots here over here. We're, we're just separating it for a purpose. We'll put the boots here over here. Okay. All right, what's mentioned next? In the order which it's given in Exodus, huh? Yeah. What's mentioned next? Badgers. Huh? Badgers. Remember last year, some of our badgers? Badger skins. Badger skins. Now, Brother Lindsay left Adam Clark, and some of you have known who have studied this also. We couldn't think in terms of the badger that we think of in some of our northern states of this country. Uh, apparently, they do not have the badger in, in the Middle East, or in that country they were dealing with. 
So that escaped, they weren't sure about it. And there was uh, some of the authorities that said the parker skins, uh, we had thought even a seal skins, and then I think it was brother, uh, it was brother Ron Rock, said that, said that maybe the parker skin might be violence to this because of, it might be one of the unclean animals mentioned in Leviticus as far as those that swim in the sea. Uh, I didn't pursue that further when I got home, but I remember that because it was given to us from the floor last year. But we got the badger skins. Mm -hmm. Another thing, the is uh, very tame and nice, gentle, and the badger is very vicious. Right, yeah, very definite. Right, just keep in mind, we'll put badger skins up here, but uh, well, let's put parkers. Now, Bob. Spell Parkers for me. Is that in? That's fine. Parkers. Now, what else is mentioned? Alright. We've got the wood. We'll put it up here. What else is mentioned? Alright, and then let's go to the rest. We're not going to put the rest up there because this goes into the attire. Alright, now, now, what we have, and the reason we didn't put the rest of them up there, what we have here, we were primarily interested in getting the materials that deal with specifically the subject that we're dealing with, not the priest attire, but this, the uh, curtain off courtyard, the uh, tabernacle and Mishkan attire, and everything that's pertinent to this. So we've got all our materials up there, and this gives us a basis to work from. Now, uh, for those of you who were with us last year, do you remember? We said put a special point by this because it is significant and it's borne out in all of this study. Our principles involved here, and usually I told one of the brothers about a good meaning that you have to put it that way. But usually if I'm reading the aggregate or the testimony or a brother Roberts writings or anything, if there's a passage that's real interesting, and I think it's a key passage that helps me to have a much better understanding. And I don't do this indiscriminately. It's not often that I use this, but when I do, it clues me that this is important. So I'm going to say that this is real important to our class, and all of us mark it like this, put the circle around it, and here's the principle that we're going to have here, because it has a being here. The principle is, when we look at all of these materials, and we spoke something of the wealth and the beauty of them, the principle is that the materials used in the complete tabernacle, that's the court, the holy place, and the most holy, become more precious in value, beauty, and workmanship as we approach the dwelling place of Yahweh's presence by Eloistic manifestation. This principle holds true in all the furnishings used in the tabernacle service. Now, I don't know whether you got, by the way, if some of you want that later, you want a copy from a note to be fine. But it is a fact that in looking at the subject, it becomes apparent that as the priests work and serve in that area there, that the materials become more precious, the workmanship is finer, uh, done in a more awful way, and there is greater beauty as you proceed from the outside of the curtained area on through right into the most holy place. Now, are there any questions? Any questions or comments? Jim? On that gold, you got a physical likeness to God. Mm -hmm. Are you talking of uh, creative or of uh, immortal attainment? All right, now, this brother's question was, in our 
in our spiritual symbols of these materials given. He says that in them we've got the moral and physical aliveness of God. Uh, Jim, state your question again so we can hear it now. I mean physical in the sense of creating physicalness or, or attained physical. Alright, in the sense of which Jim asked the question, moral likeness, we have to develop a kind of character, a God-like character that God can use and if we successfully pass the judgment seat of his son, and this character has been developed to that extent, then he will give us a change to his nature, will he not? So in that sense, Jim, and I think we know, in that sense, the physical likeness of God only comes when those who have attained that in character will have been given the divine nature. But the group? Another characteristic of gold. Uh-huh. It's tried, it's pure gold, it's very rough. Malleable. Yeah. Yeah. You want it. I mean, it's pure. It's soft. You can hammer it. You can shape it. This is the characteristic of pure gold. You go down to silver, you get into the alloy, they get stiffer mm-hmm. and more rigid. Mm-hmm. There's another interesting thing there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this. That's right. Go ahead. Gold. Gold. The, the spectrum from white. Mm-hmm. Light. Mm-hmm. Light. The gold is yellow. Right. The blue is the primary color. And your your scarlet is the primary. Right. Color. If you put the three together and get white. Right. If you if you branch out from these different areas, you get your your flesh color. You get uh, right. purple. You get raw leaves. You get the blue. I mean. Right. Brother Johnson, we see that you're with us. Not only with the mind, but in spirit. And that's true. What the brother said, and we appreciate that response from the press. Maybe somebody can tell me if this is something I've heard, but. I remember somewhere that gold is completely pure state of the written is clear or transparent. That's right. It's in the Revelation. It's in Revelation. Well, what is the response to that? I think it's rather a new uh, speech to the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, transparent. I don't think this is known in the industry today. That's right, uh, Calvin. Phyllis had suggested, as Calvin said, they don't think that's true of those who work and go on today. And of course, right now we're not sure that in our terms of translations that we're thinking, whether in the Hebrew, whether that's what is meant, that's another thing we have to keep in mind. There may be a different meaning that has come down over the centuries to it. So we're not sure, but it is an interesting thought there. Well, science, too. Mm-hmm. I don't believe we mentioned it in our class, but I think it, it was mentioned in the uh, assembly down there in our afternoon period. But again, looking at the uh, the subject of the tabernacle and the encampment of Israel, uh, in this subject, <coughs> Brethren, I've lost my thought. It's just, just like that, so we'll have to pass on. Uh, any other questions there or comments? Certainly, I sometimes have it right or right. Uh, like I say, we don't want to belabor the point, but 
obviously from our response to these things that shows him that the principle is sound. And what God has revealed here, these principles are sound all the way through as we apply to this subject or the subject of the other two classes. It's there, but then it's, it's not speculation. Is that right? Well, I think it's quite this too, we'll go through the trials, we're constantly going through the fire, and each time we... ...in the wilderness, we are drawing these spiritual lessons, realizing that all of this prophetically speaks of the work of Christ and the work of the saints in the New Jerusalem age, which Brett's going to deal with. All right, now, here it is. Uh-huh. Yeah, I want to say one thing that always enters my mind. Mm -hmm. Think of this skull as the overlay in the most holiest and all things mm -hmm. pertaining to the temple itself. The one word is unadulterated. Unadulterated. Yeah, unadulterated. Yeah, unadulterated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Without alloy. Right. Well, anything placed right. Anything. That's right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. right. All right. Let's take a look now, brethren, at the uh, at the curtain area or the court area itself. And what we're dealing with is this area here. Now we have proceeded, in other words, in looking at our other panel. I, I hope really, class, that it's not too distracting when I have to. Uh, go over and select these panels from time to time. But we've proceeded now from the outer perimeter of the camp right on down to the actual curtain off area, this little focal point here in the camp. And it was in the center of the camp. It was in the center of the camp. So this is what we're going to deal with at this time. Let's take a look at the curtained area. And in the scriptures, it goes to pains to tell us about the curtained area. And let me go back down and pick up the uh, scripture we have on that. The description of the court of the tabernacle is found in Exodus, the 27th chapter, 9 through 18, and another reference given, almost in detail, is given in Exodus, the 38th chapter, 9 through 20. So you can flip there. Uh, Sister Gregory, I said that it was Exodus... Well, you said the first thing. You're talking about the materials? The materials is Exodus 25, 1 through 9. Now, I hope that we're not distracting anybody, but the, but the, court, the court of the tabernacle, the court area that we're dealing with now, the description of that is given in detail in Exodus 27, 1 through 8, and Exodus 38, 1 through 7. Now let's see if we can apply our principle. That's all right. All right. Right, brethren, I got the one below it. All right. Exodus 38, 9 through 20. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it shows you that you, it's easy to... Uh, to uh, yeah, Exodus 38, 9 through 20. Now, class, in dealing with the court area, and this is what we're dealing with, let's take the reading from one of those uh, sources there and read what is given to us. Uh, the first one I gave was Exodus 27, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And what verses did I give you? 9 through 18. All right. In Exodus 27, 9 through 18, we're given God's description of the court area. And thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle... For the south side southward there shall be hangings for the court of fine twined linen of an hundred cubits long for one side, and the twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass, 
the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver, and likewise for the north side in length there shall be hangings of a hundred cubits long, and his twenty pillars and their twenty sockets of brass, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side shall be hangings of fifty cubits, their pillars ten, and their sockets ten. And the breadth of the court on the east side eastward shall be fifty cubits. The hangings of the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, their pillars three, their sockets three. And on the other side shall be hangings of fifteen cubits, their pillars three, their sockets three. And for the gate of the court shall be an hanging of twenty cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen wrought with needlework and their pillars shall be four and their sockets four. And all the pillars round about the court shall be filleted with silver, their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of brass. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, and the breadth fifty, everywhere, and the height five cubits of fine twined linen, and their sockets of brass. That's the description. And we go over to the 38th chapter, and we find another description given there. Now there's an interesting point there that maybe we can come back later, but uh, we'd like to save it because there's a principle even involved in there. But right now we've got a description given to us in scriptures of this court area. Now, let's take it as it's given here. It tells us, well, let's get the size first. It's interesting, again, brethren, we become so conscious of detail. It didn't say that, well, they curtained off an area, period. It says they curtained off an area, but it gives us the size of it. So one side of it was 100 cubits. Isn't that right? A hundred cubits, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, I don't know whether I've got this from Adam Clark as well as from others, but you've got two different sizes of the cubits. One of them is 21 inches, and another one is 18 inches. And we had to select one or the other, and we feel like, in our mind, and we could be wrong, but we feel like that possibly the 18-inch the cubit is the one that's referred to. And I think uh, Brother Roberts feels that it is. But anyway, be that as it may, the 18-inch cubit is the one we've used, so if you take the 100 cubits, and there's 18 inch to a cubit, we come up with uh, a side of that uh, court area of 150 feet by half of that, which is 75. Now that's the size of it. It's 150 feet long, and it's 75 feet wide, to give us an idea. But now, that's a pretty good size area, but not tremendously large. And with that in mind, brethren, and looking at it here, doesn't it strike you as interesting that this is not, therefore, where Israel congregates two and a half million people? Obviously not. They don't congregate in this area here. Any Israelite in the camp coming here to offer sacrifices would come to the doorway, the, the doorway to the court. So they come here. They don't come inside that courtyard there, Israel. Obviously, it's not large enough, but there are other reasons for it. Now, with that curtained area, within the camp itself, what is it telling us? What did it tell Israel? Here is a curtained-off area. This is the place 
where they might find fellowship with their God. This is the place where they draw near to Him. And yet when they get down there, they find that the area is curtained off. What does it teach us? What is it suggestive of? Paul, what would you say? So therefore Israel, Israel in the camp could not come down there and have anything to do with the service in there. Only the priests could do that. And only a selection of the priests from the priestly tribe. Not the 23,000 Levites, but only uh, Aaron and his sons. So look how selective it is there. But this teaches separateness. Now, since it tells us, that it just doesn't say that it was a curtained area, but it tells us it was made of fine twine linen. If we go to God's provided key, what do we find in the linen here? Righteousness. All right, if this tabernacle area there, and all of the furnishings that go in there, if it is surrounded by fine twine linen, what are we saying that this is surrounded by? God's righteousness. Meaning that any unrighteous person could not come in there unless he does something about his condition. Unless he does something about his condition. Now, it tells us that there are brass pillars there. There's 60 in number. And there's a reason why it tells us the number. It didn't say that he was hung on many brass pillars. It tells us it was hung on 60 brass pillars. If we go to the God-provided key here, we have the brass. What does it stand for? Sin's flesh. So in this court area here, we have righteousness associated with it, but we also have sin's flesh. Now, what else is mentioned there? What is it set in? What's the base of the socket? Socket of brass. But if you get at the top, and we call it we call it Phillips, uh, I like to think of capitals. But on the top, there, there's an ornamental capital on the top. What was it made of? Silver. All right, so God says, let's go to the, uh, the God-provided key. If we come up with the silver, what are we told? There must have something to do with someone's redemption. And it has to be according or following obedience. So even here, in the approach to this area, we're told that righteousness is involved, that sin's flesh is involved, and that also obedience and redemption is involved. Now, with that in mind, does someone want to volunteer and tell us what this might be suggestive of? Oscar, you want to try it? It helps us to think when sometimes we put the... Well, I put the numbers together there, which is the number of 6 and 10, which is the number of 6 is the number of flesh, and 10 is the number of divine or, uh, of, uh, order. So you have... Uh, that makeup right there. So, yeah, you're working with numbers right now, yeah. When you tie it all together there, and you tie obedience to it, to flesh, you have uh, sin's flesh made the obedience through divine order. All right, all right, now, Austin, now, brother, just for, for a second here, now, and looking at this, uh, this area that we're speaking of, obviously... We said earlier that it not only applies to the work of Christ, but also to the work of His body. So whoever is involved in this has borne sin's flesh, but has put on the garments of righteousness. 
and there has been redemption followed, or in other words, by obedience here. So whoever is represented here, obviously, they have gone through God's principles of drawing near unto Him. So again we ask, who might the 60 pillars stand for? Huh? A multitude. A multitude, because there's many involved here. A multitude, and so if we look at it in its totality, and the brethren in examining the subject, this is telling us in effect that this is the collective body of Christ, His whole body, not just the head, the whole body of Christ, who has gone through this process of redemption, who bore sin's flesh, and their necessitated obedience. Now, in that context, those of us who have put on that covenant name, does it suggest to us that we were in the process of this? We're in the process of this right here. Now, if we go to the east side of the court, we're given further detail. This begins to tell us about the east side and the court or the doorway there, the court's doorway. It tells us also that it was made of fine twine linen, but then it interjects in there and tells us that there was fine needlework in that curtained doorway. There was fine needlework, and it was of blue, purple, and scarlet. Now, with that in mind then, the doorway to the court is telling us something. Let's take the first one. Uh, let's take the blue. There's blue in the courtway there. So looking at our key, what does the blue stand for? Heavenliness, God's work, providence, healing. All right, let's look at that in Christ. Was Christ provided by God? Doesn't the Scriptures tell us that He came not by the will of the flesh? He was not the natural son of Joseph. He came only by God's will, not by the will of the flesh. So whatever it is, the Son of God is provided by the heaven in His here, or God's work. Why might we use the term providence here? What does the word providence mean, Jews? Give me a definition of providence. Literally, what's you go? Literally, God's providing. Now, God's providing in all of the natural things of life, food, clothing, shelter, health, our very being, all of these things, but certainly God's providing of our spiritual needs and to our final redemption. So no wonder we put it providence up here. Because according to God's providing, in His providence, He provided His Son. What about the healing? Healing of the nations. There is the healing of the nations. We are healed. By his son's stress, we are here. That's right. Indeed we are, Anna. Indeed we are. All right. We've got the blue here. Let's take a look. Another color mentioned in there is the purple. What is the purple in the doorway? Royalty. Royalty. Kingship. Obviously we ask, in what way does this tell us of Christ's work? Is he royalty now? He will be. Careful now. Is he royalty now? Yes. He's a royal. He says no. He says yes. Is he a king now? No. No. Priest now. Is he ruling over his kingdom? No. Is he over New Jerusalem yet? No. What is he? Priest. Priest. Priesthood, isn't he? He's a priest now, brother Ralph. Explain to me that he is not royalty now. 
For this end was I born, and for this purpose came I into the world. To be king. To be king. Yeah, to be king, yeah. Well, we'll just leave this all He is an uncrowned king, let's put it that way. Right, right But in this enough, Brother Ralph, the reason we made mention of that, his work now has nothing to do with his kingly and lordly rule of the earth, bringing peace and quietness to it. His work now is the high priest. The scripture tells us he's our high priest, and as you've been pointing out in your class, there's a great deal of similarity between the book. Well, in fact, they're really twin companions. The book of Leviticus and the book of Hebrews could actually be called companions. You would agree that, wouldn't you, Brother Ralph? It's obvious when you read the two books. If one, by the way, brethren, put that in your notes. If you want, if you want to just test the thing, put in your notes there that there there are companion chapters in the Old and New Testament, Leviticus and Hebrews. And it's remarkable how Paul draws upon what he says in Hebrews as it applies to what's described there in the book of Leviticus. Really, you'll really appreciate it if you sit down sometime and read it. And there have been occasions when a brother presiding at the memorial table has very effectively been able to deal with that, realizing the similarity and what's meant there in those teachings of that book of Leviticus and also of Hebrews. All right, we've got the red. We've got the red also in that doorway. Now, brethren, you remember yesterday we said, we said yesterday, how could anyone believing in orthodoxy, in so-called Christianity, and mind you, many sincere people, many sincere people who are trying to live godly lives, if they were present in our examination of this subject, and we were to ask, and if they were capable of following up to this point with us, and we were to ask what that red stood for in that curtain, and we've already identified Christ with the blue and the purple, what do you suppose the reaction we would get if we asked him what does the red apply to in, in this thing pertaining to Christ? Huh? They'd have trouble reconciling They would have trouble reconciling it. This would be a real problem. And if they got this far with us in the key, they would have difficulty reconciling this thing. Also, as we get further in, we will deal with other aspects of Christ here. But they would have difficulty with it. Now, interestingly enough, there is an opening into the court. It's not curtained off all the way around, and there's no way to get into it. So what is a doorway for? It's an entrance. Was it but class? Yes. What are gates for? This is a gateway or a doorway. What do the scriptures tell us about Jesus? Is he the means? Is he the gateway? The door in which we get it? Yeah. He is the means of us. Yeah. The only one. Right, Harold. We can think of it. He is the only means. The only provided means whereby we might enter into that court in these symbols here. Now, any questions or comments? Any questions or comments? Do both of these aspects in your uh, scarlet apply to this man Christ you're talking about? Say that again, Jim. You've got sins, plural, and sins. Good, Jim. Good. What Jim asked me, I think last year we made mention of that fact because it's a very interesting point. And it's interesting and it's intriguing, but the beauty of it is scriptural. Jim asked the question, is this scarlet here that's mentioned here as it's applied to the doorway, we said that scarlet stands for sins, many sins, committed sins, but we said it also stands, and it does scripture, 
for constitutional or Adamic sin. Now, for Christ, we can see the constitutional sin, the scarlet, and it's in the doorway. We didn't just throw it in there to give it beauty. It's in there as part of God's specification. We've got his sin nature that he derived from Adam just as we did. But can the sins apply to our Savior? No. Obviously not. He was without sin. That is, personal sins. He did no sin. He did not commit sin. Well, did we not say further that it's instructed that this is not only prophetic of Christ's work, but it's also prophetic of the work of the saints? Now, is there or would there be blueness in the uh, saints of Christ? I'm, I'm, be careful how you answer that. Is there right now, when we look at ourselves, we look at the saints and the body of Christ, is there blueness? What you say, Helen? Well, maybe we put it this way. When it applies healing, no. Is it blueness now, or is it blueness to be in the future as far as we're concerned? Future state. Future. All right, here. Blue and purple, both future. Blue and purple, yes. Now, now there is future in the sense, in, in the final sense in which you're using it here. Certainly, the scarlet, the sins and the sin apply to us. Apply to us, and it's in there. But particularly, mm-hmm. can we prove in the Bible that that, that tabernacle represents the, anything about it? That's Christ, not the saints. That's not typical of the saints at all. That's typical of Christ's work, not the work of the saints. Anna, are you speaking of the court or the? I'm speaking the whole thing. Well, Anna, in answer to what Anna said, our study has convinced us that this is a prophecy not only of the work of Christ, but it's the work of Christ's body. Now, Anna, if you want. Evidence, and I say that if you want evidence, if you want to get with me in the afternoon, we'll go over a lot of notes. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's there. All right. Can we proceed? Yeah, Frank. <coughs> this the gate here that's supposed to be representative uh, of Christ also as an mm-hmm. entrance into this thing. It, it, now speak louder, Frank, because they can't hear you. I said, is the gate supposed to be representative of our entrance in here through Christ? Is that what this particular gate, is that what it stands for? Well, isn't Christ the means of which we attain that? In that case, the sins would apply. Brethren, to show you how beautiful it is, what's involved here, how could we ever reach the altar here, this altar of burnt offering, if we didn't come through Christ? We're going to get into this, but how could we possibly get to this before we got here? In, in, to emphasize the point, you don't think that somebody leaps over that curtain there, you do you? What does the scripture say? He that cometh in any other way is a thief and a robber. So in answer to what you said, Frank, obviously, we can't get to this. Whatever is involved here, we're going to get to it. Whatever is involved here, we can't get to that altar there until we have come through God's appointed way. And there's only one name given under heaven, whereby we must be saved, even the name Christ Jesus. All right, let's take our camera. What was that? Alma, I would be inclined to put the emphasis on the gate of the work of Christ more than it would us. But other than the colors here, we know that the red here is uh, does apply both the sins and the sins. But but to uh, to keep this thing in context, we would emphasize that the gateway itself. The gateway to the court area is really a remarkable uh, symbolic prophecy of Christ's work. But when you start talking in terms of these brass pillars, 
and other things that's involved here in that curtained area there, you're dealing with the Christ body. You're dealing with the multitude, as uh, Sister Helen said. All right. What do you say we go now into the court area? And what is the first... Well, look at this. What is the first thing that you see if you were to step to that gateway or opening? What is the first... Huh? The altar. This bronze or brass altar. So if it's bronze or brass, what is it? All right. So this sacrificial altar, this burnt offering altar there, is made of brass. What else is it made of? Wood. It's made of wood. So, taking the wood and the brass and looking at our key, what might that altar represent? Just in a general sense, we've got wood and brass. Let's take the wood first. We didn't put wood up here, did we? Yeah. 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 All right, right, all right. Well, all right, what does the wood stand for? Well, we just put it up here right now. I think all of us will be... Where did I put the wood? Wood. <laughs> Human nature. Alright, so that altar there, since we're told that it's made of wood and a brass, we know that we're dealing with something that's teaching us in symbol of human nature and the brass of sin's flesh. Did that bell ring? It did, didn't it? it did. Well, maybe it sits as well. Huh? <laughs>